You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at the first nine verses today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A couple months ago, we started a sermon series called Gospel Foundations. And the purpose of this series was to highlight how we at Sovereign Grace are striving to be a gospel-centered church. Um, These days, that's quite a common moniker for churches to use to describe themselves. And I'm glad that churches are striving to become gospel-centered churches. But we need to try to ask and answer the question of how do we do that not only in word, but in deed. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And when he said that, what he meant was the church needs to be built on the person and on the work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did in his death and resurrection. That must serve as the foundation of what we believe and what we do if we are to become and and continue to grow as a healthy church. We put this series on pause for obvious reasons uh, to give us an opportunity to directly address COVID-19 and how to process this pandemic from a biblical perspective and uh, to give us tools um, through which we can look at the pandemic and not respond with fear and anxiety, but with faith and courage, and even for the church to rise up with acts of sacrificial love uh, towards those who are around us. Uh, But our leadership team has now decided that it's time to get back to our series on gospel foundations and to rediscovering and to, to some extent, relaying this foundation that is built on Christ alone. We're going to go back to the business of studying and applying what it looks like to not only read the gospel on paper, but to live the gospel in practice. Pastor Tim started this uh, uh, resuming the Gospel Foundation series last Sunday when he addressed the topic of humility. And humility is a, a key aspect, a key characteristic and virtue of those who would be part of a gospel-centered church. We, we need to cultivate humility if we were to cultivate a gospel culture in our church. You know, it's interesting that when I, when I first started attending Sovereign Grace, uh, our church, about 12 years ago, one of the first things that stuck out to me about the people who uh, were at the church at the time, and many of whom are still part of our church, was their evident humility. These were people who didn't think much of themselves. And when I say that, I'm not talking about uh, them putting themselves down or them lacking in, in self-esteem. No, they, they, they didn't think much about themselves because they were busy thinking about how to serve other people. And that, that really is the essence of what true humility looks like. You know, C.S. Humi- uh, Lewis uh, famously defined humility as not thinking less of yourself, but think of, thinking of yourself less. And that was true of so many of the people I met here at Sovereign Grace. Now, when I first joined, I, I thought that this was just a happy coincidence 
that Sovereign Grace was just the kind of place that attracted humble people. But now I realize that that a big reason for why I encountered such humility is because humility was being intentionally cultivated. It was being taught behind the pulpit and it was being modeled in practice through the ways that people interacted with one another and cared for one another. You know, there's a reason why the Bible calls us to humble ourselves. You know, you think about First uh, Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, or Jesus saying, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, hum- humble isn't just an adjective to describe who people already are. Humble can actually be a verb. It's something that we can do. We can, we can do things to become more humble people. And so when, when we think about what it means to be humble people, to want to become more humble, we're not just uh, uh, waiting for humility to drop down from the sky and land on us so that we wake up one morning and boom, we're humble people. We can, we can actually engage our minds and our wills in uh, doing things and engaging in practices that will help us to become humble people. And today we're going to focus on one of those things that we can do to become humble people. Uh, We've already uh, mentioned this. Pastor Tim gave an excellent explanation of what this is already. Uh, It's what we call sharing evidences of grace, sharing evidences of grace. And this is something that, that comes out of humility, but it also produces humility. Um, Humble people do this, and those who do this become humble people. And that's why we want to learn what it is and how to practice it. We we practice it because we want to become humble people. And we want to become humble people because that's what a gospel culture looks like. So sharing evidences of grace is, is, uh, you know, it's similar to talking to someone about what you appreciate about them. Okay, you, when we heard the evidences of grace earlier in the service, it, it sounds a little bit like like public sharing of what you like about someone. But it actually goes beyond that because we're not just trying to highlight personality traits like, oh, I really like the fact that you're really funny. Um, we're trying to highlight how we see God working in that person's life. That's why it's sharing evidences of grace. It's evidences of God's Grace, evidence of how God is at work in that person to help them to grow into spiritual maturity. You could say, uh, to, to, to draw a general category, we're helping people to see how they're growing in love for God and love for neighbor. Now, like many of you, I didn't grow up in a culture that did anything close to this. Um, you know, Chinese culture, it's probably very similar to Dutch culture in this, in this sense, Um, is very reserved when it comes to encouragement. We'll often hear about what we can do better, but we'll very rarely hear about what we're already doing well. Encouragement really is a rare commodity. And that's not just true for specific cultures, but I think in in our uh, generation, it's probably true in general as well. People in general don't know how to use their words to build people up. We, we know how to use our words to complain about people, to talk about how people have hurt us, uh, to correct people. We, we even know how to use our words to hurt people. But when it comes to encouragement, we often don't have much to say. But the, the wonderful thing is, as we read the scriptures, uh, we realize that that wasn't the case 
uh, with the writers of the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul. If you read his letters, uh, you'll find that he almost always begins his letters with thanksgiving and with encouragement. He uses his words to build people up as a matter of habit. Uh, He was so accustomed to doing this that it flowed out of his pen. And when you read the rest of what he wrote in those letters, you realize that uh, how, how much more amazing that was because the churches he was writing to actually weren't doing very well in general. They, they, were, they were departing from sound doctrine or they were committing some immoral practice. The Corinthian church. You know, if you, if you know about the Corinthian church, you've read about all the different issues that they had in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll know that they were struggling in both areas. Doctrinally, um, they wanted to move beyond the gospel to get into kind of deeper study in philosophy, uh, the kinds of ideas that would be impressive to their neighbors. Um, They were denying the resurrection. Uh, Some of them, um, Paul says in 1st Corinthians, uh, later on in in chapter 15, were were denying that there was a resurrection. And then morally, there's a whole kind of buffet of different issues that they were struggling with. On one end, some people were were glorying in their sexual liberation, in celebrating the fact that a man could have his his father's wife. But other people, uh, described a couple chapters later, were saying that all sexual relations were evil and that abstinence, complete abstinence throughout the entirety of your life was the path of true purity and piety. Of course, both of them were wrong. Uh, others you know, were in such conflict with one another and so full of hatred towards one another that they were suing one another in secular courts. And that's something that Paul had to address in his letter as well. And others were, were struggling so much with licentiousness that they were showing up to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Supper in an intoxicated state. You could say without any exaggeration that the Corinthian church was a dysfunctional church. It was barely working, and it was on the verge of completely collapsing. But the amazing thing is, despite all these concerns that Paul had for them, pastoral concerns, personal concerns, he planted this church, he he carried them on his heart. Despite all these different struggles and the dysfunction in the church, Paul was able to begin his letter with encouragement with encouragement. He was able to see God's grace in their lives and to share what he saw with them. And that led him to give thanks to God for them. As he said in verse four, um, I give thanks to my God always for you. How, How is that possible? How could he do that? How was he able to give thanks to God for them? Well, and and the question for us is, how can we become the kinds of people who do the same thing, who see God's grace and share about God's grace with others, especially those who are struggling? Well, that's what we're going to answer in our text today. So we're going to read uh, our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, the title of this sermon is Seeing and Sharing God's Grace. Seeing and Sharing God's Grace. Our text reveals that there were three reasons why Paul was able to see God's grace in the lives of the Corinthian church and to share about that grace with them. And these three reasons will serve as our three points today and give us insight into how we too can start sharing evidences of grace with others. Paul focused on three things. First, who they were. Second, who they are. And third, who they will be. Who they were, who they are, and who they will be. Let's look at our first point, who they were. Paul begins his letter by reminding both himself and the Corinthians of who they were. In verse 1, Paul says that, that he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, we know that the apostle Paul was exactly that. He was an apostle. He was, uh, he was given this apostolic office to provide authoritative teaching to the early church, not just to a single church as an elder, but uh, leadership and authority across churches, across geographic regions. And that wasn't because he had the right education. That wasn't because he got the right degrees. That wasn't because he went to the right seminary. It was because he received the right calling. God called him to be an apostle. And that is the only reason why he served as one. Paul then explains that the Corinthians were were also called. Uh, In fact, every single person who has repented of their sins and professed faith in Christ is called by God. He addresses this calling in verse 2 when he says that the Corinthians were called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, it's important to note that this calling in verse 2 is different from the calling in verse 1. Verse 1 is talking about the call of an apostle, and verse 2 is talking about the call of the Christians. Not every Christian has the calling in verse 1, but every single Christian who has ever lived, is living, or ever will live has received the calling in verse 2. Everyone in every place who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has been called, what? What does it say? It says, has been called to be saints, to be saints. Now, what does that mean? Well, the Apostle Paul uses this word saints 40 times in his letters. And every single time, without exception, he is referring to Christians in general, not to super Christians, not to elite Christians, not to Christians who have died and done some kind of miracle or showed some kind of extraordinary purity of life. Now, he always uses the word saints to refer to Christians who are still living, 
and Christians who are still sinning. The word saints uh, literally means holy ones, holy ones, those who are set apart for God, for him and for his use. Yes, we are to become holy as we grow as Christians, but uh, on another level, we've already been made holy by grace. Paul explains how this came about in verse 2. He says that the Corinthians were sanctified in Christ Jesus. They were sanctified in Christ Jesus. This word sanctified means to be made holy. So we're sanctified to be saints. Now, on one level, we know that sanctification, to be sanctified, can mean to increasingly become holy, to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in spiritual maturity. But it can also refer to this one-time event of God setting us apart and making us holy. And that's the sense that's meant here. When we turn to Christ, we are joined to Christ by faith. And, and we are made holy by virtue of our union with him. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus. We are made to be saints. The author Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He says, sainthood is not a spiritual attainment or even a recognition of such attainment. It is rather a state or status into which God brings every believer. All Christians are saints. You could say that sainthood is not a future title to be earned. It is a present grace to be received. It's not a future title to be earned. It is a present grace to be received. In Christ Jesus, we have already been made holy. In Christ Jesus, we are already made saints. Now, the question is, who is doing this calling? We've been talking about being called to be saints. Well, who is doing the calling? The answer is quite obvious, but we can look at the text as well. Paul explains in verse 9 that God is faithful by whom you were called, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, God is the one who is doing the calling. God is the one who is making us saints. We are not making ourselves saints. We are not setting ourselves apart as those who are holy for God to be used by God. God is setting us apart for himself. He's the one who called us, who drew us to himself into union with Jesus Christ, a holy God making a holy people through his holy son. Now, this gives us a crucial insight into Paul's thinking. And it's one of the keys to being able to see and to share God's grace in the lives of others, including those who are struggling. Paul remembered that despite all of their division and their dysfunction, their departure from sound doctrine, their, their, their immorality, he remembered that they were called to be saints. And they were called by God. God had set his gaze upon every believer in the Corinthian church, and, and he called them specifically by name, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He remembered that they were already made holy through the Holy Son of God. In other words, Paul had learned to look at people through the lens of the cross. Pastor Tim has put it uh, this way. He says he, he learned to look at people cross-eyed. Cross-eyed is kind of funny because this morning, Sammy, my youngest son, two years old, he was, he was making us all laugh because he was crossing his eyes. And I don't know how he learned that. Um, but we, we are all to learn how to look at one another cross-eyed through the lens of 
the cross. This is the skill of, look, of learning to look beyond who people are as we perceive and as we experience to who they are in Christ. It's learning how to look past the sinner in order to see the saint. And it's not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of what God has done for them in Christ. Now, this isn't easy. Um, and it, in fact, it may feel nearly impossible when it comes to certain relationships because we are so accustomed to judging people on what we've seen of them in the past and in the present. And sometimes people have hurt us so much. There's too much water under the bridge. Um, so much water under the bridge that the last thing that comes to mind when we think of certain people is gratitude. Um, a lot of other things might come to our minds, but, but not gratitude But you know what that is? Um, That is walking by sight. It's trusting in our own perception. Uh, It's basing our judgment of people on our own experience. Uh, God has called us to walk by by faith. And and that is what looking at people cross-eyed means, what it requires. It means walking by faith, not trusting what we have seen and experienced, but trusting in who God says those people are. Paul had learned this skill. And uh, through his example, we are called to imitate him. It is an act of faith to see the saint behind the sinner, to believe that the person who has hurt you and sinned against you is a chosen, precious saint called by God himself. If we are to express gratitude for the sinners in our lives, We must remember who they were. They were called by God to be saints. And when we do, we'll be able to say with the psalmist in in Psalm 16, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in uh, in whom is all my delight. That's the first strategy in learning to give thanks, even for those um, it's hard to be thankful for. We remember who they were. The second is to remember who they are, who they are. And that leads to our second point. Paul turns his attention from the past and into the present in verse four, when he writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's he's giving thanks for God's grace in their lives. Now, what grace is he talking about? Well, he reveals the answer in verse five. It says that it's the grace that enriched the Corinthians in all speech And all knowledge, in all speech and all knowledge. What Paul's doing here is he's highlighting a unique characteristic of the Corinthian believers. According to him, the Corinthians excelled when it came to speech and to knowledge. We might think of them as both scholars and orators. They loved to study and they loved to talk about what they were studying in a public context. They were educated and they were eloquent. Now, that may sound nice, and it may sound like a tremendous asset, and and it is. But if you read on, you'll actually discover that that these gifts were often abused. They they didn't result in good. They actually resulted in much evil. Uh, For example, their passion for knowledge, their obsession with with study and learning was the very thing that was tempting them to, to leave the gospel. 
They, they, they wanted something beyond the gospel. They wanted something on the cutting edge of philosophy, something that would keep them um, in the good graces of their, uh, their neighbors who are all about the newest ideas. And that, of course, prompted Paul to say uh, those famous words that the, the cross is foolishness uh, to those who are perishing. It's never going to be impressive philosophically. But to those who are called, those who are being saved, it is both the power and the wisdom of God. Their devotion to eloquent speech was also leading them astray. In fact, it was causing the division that we read about later on in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Some of them were saying that they followed Apollos, who was an early church leader. Some of them were saying they followed Paul. Some were saying they followed Peter. And the truly pious were saying that they followed Jesus. Now, the reason why they were kind of dividing up into different camps wasn't because each of these people was teaching something different. No, they were all teaching the same gospel. The, the reason for the division was that these, these leaders were teaching with different styles. And, uh, and the Corinthians were rallying around their favorite styles and saying, oh, yeah, I, I love that style the most. Um, they, their, their eloquence, their devotion to speech was causing division. The Corinthians excelled in speech and knowledge, and those are good things, but they were leading to bad results. And they were starting to believe that Christian maturity is measured by the extent of one's giftings. But uh, as we know, Paul had something to say about that. He showed them that, that true Christian maturity isn't about excelling in speech or in knowledge. True Christian maturity is about excelling in love. Excelling in love. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, Paul writes, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. It puffs up your head. It makes you proud. It makes you think that you're something when you're really nothing. But love, love builds up. And of course, there's the most famous chapter in the New Testament about love, uh, which Paul wrote in chapter 13, a little later in this wonderful letter, where he actually says, If I speak, in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul is correcting them for their over-devotion to both speech and knowledge. And he's saying, if you have speech and knowledge, but have not love, you have nothing. And the Corinthians seem to have miss this. But, but here's the thing. The, the amazing thing about this is that this abuse of the gifts didn't stop Paul from saying that their gifts of speech and knowledge were from God. And there are evidences of God's grace. And it led Paul to give thanks to God for them. He says in verse four that the reasons why he always gives thanks to God uh, for them is because of the grace of God that led to their gifts of speech and knowledge. Paul's celebrating their gifts. He's giving thanks to God for their gifts. He, he, he even says in verse 6 that their speech and knowledge were the result of their faith in the testimony about Christ. That is, their, their trust in the gospel so that they weren't lacking in any gift. That's how special these gifts were. These gifts of speech and of knowledge. What Paul's doing is he's showing that he was able to look beyond the abuses of the gifts to see the gifts themselves. And when he saw the gifts themselves, 
he, he saw them as evidences of God's grace, and, and that made him thankful. It made him thankful that the Lord had given them these gifts, and he didn't hesitate to share his gratitude and encouragement for the Corinthians. Now, it's not hard to think about how we might apply this today. You know, let me give you a couple of examples. Most of us here in this service would call ourselves Reformed. We are we are reformed believers, we are built, uh, our church, our doctrine, our practice are built from the reformed tradition. And that means that we're people who take doctrine seriously, especially the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And it's been a wonderful thing as we've wrestled with the pandemic to hear again and again from believers young and older that they trust in God's sovereignty. But you know that uh, there are some people outside the reformed world who have a name for us. They call us the frozen chosen, the frozen chosen. Yes, we might have a devotion to sound doctrine. We might care about truth a lot, but we don't care about people a lot. Now, I don't think that that's true of our church and it might be a tendency, but it's something that we are actively trying to combat as we grow as a church. We don't wanna be known as the frozen chosen. We wanna be known as the melted chosen, those who have a soft heart towards those who are in need, uh, especially those who are lost. It's not true of us, but let's say for a moment that it is. Uh, let's say for a moment that we are the frozen chosen. Now, what Paul has done for us is he's modeled how our critics should respond. They, they are to look beyond the abuses of the gifts that God has given us in order to look at the gift themselves. And, and what is that gift? Well, it's a gift of, of highly valuing and protecting and pursuing and teaching sound doctrine preserving the orthodox Christian faith. And that is a wonderful thing because doctrine reveals who God is. And if we are to know God, we are to have sound doctrine. Let me give you another example as we turn the microscope on ourselves. We in the reformed world might look at, at some other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's take um, our fellow believers in the charismatic world, okay? We, we, we think about their gatherings and, you know, they're, they're jumping around. Some of them might be running around the sanctuary, waving flags. Others might be speaking in tongues that are incomprehensible to anyone except themselves or perhaps even incomprehensible to themselves. And we, and we just raise our fists and we say, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. You know, you know, you know what that is, right? It's God is not a God of confusion, but of, but of peace. God values order. And, and that would be true. And we would be right to bring that correction to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But, but can we not look beyond the abuses of the gifts and to see the gift itself, which in this case is a passion for Jesus? That is a wonderful thing. And that is something that we can give thanks to God for them and even speak about that with our charismatic brothers and sisters. Let me bring an example a little closer to home. Husbands, husbands. Now, I don't know about you, but my wife often gives me a honey-do list on my day off. And uh, it may not always be what I'm looking for and may not be how I look to spend my time. And I might attend to my vacuuming with, uh, with a grumbling heart. Um, but, ca but can we not look beyond that and to see the gifts of administration and organization that God has given to our wives to manage our households well. Because I mean, most of us, let's be honest, men, we're incompetent. 
And we, we need our wives to, to help us to keep our households under strong, wise management. We can give thanks for that. Or parents. Parents. Now, this isn't the situation for me yet, but I anticipate that it will be the case in a few years. You may look at how much time your kids spend on social media. And you frown upon all the, the screen time and how they're wasting their time. And, and perhaps that's true. Perhaps they're spending a little bit too much time in the virtual world rather than in the real world. But can we not look beyond that and see God's grace in giving them a love for their friends and a desire to connect with their friends? We can celebrate that. Now, none of this means, okay, listen, none of this means that we do not offer our correction. I mean, that, the rest of the letter beyond verse 9 is Paul's correction for the Corinthian church. Uh, we, Paul looked at people cross-eyed, but he did not put on rose-colored glasses. He did not ignore or excuse the abuses. He, he addressed them head-on. But he, he was able to do that in the context of his gratitude for the Corinthian believers and to share about that gratitude and about how he saw God working in their lives with them. We are to think about who our fellow believers were and we are to think about who our fellow believers are. Lastly, we must also consider who they will be. And that leads to our final point. As Paul prepares himself to address the dysfunction in the Corinthian church, his mind inevitably turns to the future. He does that in verse 8. He considers this final day when they stand together side by side, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, guiltless on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, Paul knew that Christ the judge would not be recounting their division and dysfunction. No, he would be issuing that beautiful verdict that they, standing before Christ, through faith in Christ, having received the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ, would be pronounced guiltless. Paul knew that they were guilty of many things in this lifetime. But he also knew that the day was coming when none of it would be counted against them. Everyone who is in Christ by faith will stand guiltless before the great and awesome judge. And we know that that's possible only because that judge stepped down from his dais to become our savior. He became our savior. We are judged Guiltless because Jesus was judged guilty on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus was condemned to death for us, for our guilt. He, he took our guilt and bore our penalty upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. The innocent was declared guilty so that the guilty could be declared innocent. Paul knew that this was true, not just for himself, but for every believer, including the Corinthian believers. He, he, he knew that God had called them into fellowship with Jesus Christ, both now and forevermore. And that's why he had hope for them. His, his hope for them didn't rest in them receiving the letter, accepting his counsel, and then bringing about reform in the church. No, his, his, his hope rested in that 
final day when they would be pronounced guiltless. And that is what everyone who is a Christian, who has repented of their sins, who has turned to Christ by faith, has the joy of looking forward to. We are all guilty of many things. We are, we are guilty of sins that we know of, and we are guilty of sins that we do not even know of. Sins of action, sins of speech, sins of thought, sins of motive. We are all stained with guilt and shame. But if, if we turn to Jesus, if we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, he, he washes all that guilt away. He, he takes our, our bloody hands and cleanses them in the blood of his cross as he takes our guilt upon himself and makes us guiltless. Paul was able to express gratitude for the Corinthians because of who they were, who they are, and who they will be. They will be declared guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true, even of the fellow believers that you have in your life who you may find it difficult to love. That is true of that brother or sister who has said hurtful things to you again and again. That is true of the believer in your life who feels at times more like an enemy than like a friend. They will stand guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if today you are not sure kind of where you stand with God, what you believe about Jesus, um, this, this promise of guiltless, of a guiltless verdict on the day of judgment is available to all as a free gift by faith to be received as a gift of God's grace. If you would but say, I, I follow Jesus, I want more of him in his life, and I trust in his blood to wash away my sins. But for us who are, who are in Christ, as we may struggle at times because we still sin, and the people around us still sin, when we struggle to, to love them and give thanks for them, we, we can be confident that on the day of judgment, they will stand guiltless beside us because God is the one who will sustain them to the end. That's what he says in verse eight, that, that God will sustain them to the end. And that is what he says in verse nine, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will finish what he began. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one who has called us to himself. And he will bring us before himself on the day of judgment so that we can be pronounced guiltless. So where do we start? Where do we start with, with bringing this spiritual discipline of sharing evidences of grace with others? Uh, what, what our text has done is it's given us the framework through which we need to see people so that we can have a heart to want to share uh, encouragement with them, especially to those who are struggling and especially to those who may have hurt us. How do we start? Well, to begin with, we need to know what to look for. Like I said earlier, sharing evidences of grace is not just talking about what you like about someone's personality. It's not just about what you enjoy about the other person. It's, it's talking about uh, what God has done in that person's life, how God has helped them to grow in spiritual maturity. It's helping, to, it's helping people to see God's hand in their lives as he shapes them and molds them into the likeness of Jesus. Well, you could begin 
here. You could begin with uh, what is called the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Those That whole list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are all fruits of the Spirit. They're evidence that the Spirit is at work. We can try to manufacture some of these characteristics in our lives, but, but they will not last. In order for them to characterize not only what we do, but who we are, we need the Spirit to transform us into those kinds of people. And so you might look at that list of wonderful qualities and spend some time thinking about who you see these attributes modeled in and then you give thanks for them and then you spend some time sharing that with them you could do it by text you could write it in an email you could call them on the phone um, but you share it to to encourage them or another another uh, list that we could turn to is any of the various lists in the scriptures about the gifts of the spirit I've given one example there from Romans chapter 12, Um, gifts of administration, gifts of hospitality, gifts of generosity, gifts of encouragement, gifts of mercy, gifts of of prayer, gifts of faith, gifts of prophecy. There There are so many gifts that come to us through the working of the spirit that we can, we can think about and we can be thankful for, and we can share about that gratitude with those people. We can look about, uh, look at the attributes of Christian love. You know, Christian love is so much deeper than our world's perception of love that is most usually just sentimental. I mean, love is patient and love is kind. It, it does not envy or boast. It is not proud. It keeps no record of wrongs. It is not rude. It is not arrogant. If you, if you go through that list and you think about who, who is loving in this way, who, who have I seen love me or love others? Yes, imperfectly but I see them growing in these areas and who can I encourage um, in, in, in how they're growing in Christian love? Or it could be a more general category. You know, some of you will know him, um, our friend Steve Bice, he's a pastor at a, of a Sovereign Grace Church in Dayton, Ohio. He came up with this wonderful list. Uh, he said, you, know, you can look for examples of, of someone believing in the gospel, just trusting that Jesus has 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 died for their sins and who has given us forgiveness. That is an evidence of grace. We know that, especially in the reformed world, don't we? That we can't manufacture faith. If we have faith, it is because God has given to us uh, as a gift or those who are walking by faith, those who are confessing sin, uh, on and on, mortification of sin, obedience to God, resisting worldliness, pursuit of biblical fellowship. These are all signs that God is at work in the people who are around us. And we can give thanks for that grace in their lives. And we can share about that grace with them. You know, this, it, this isn't going to be the hard part. You know, finding out where to start. Finding out where, what to look for in identifying evidences of grace. That, that part is easy. Um, the hard part is going to be to sit down and to spend some time thinking about it and to go then and share it with others. And that is because if we're honest with ourselves, we spend very little time thinking about other people. Most of our time is spent thinking about ourselves, about our needs, about how we want recognition. And, and when we do think about other people, our, our thoughts tend to be uh, inclined towards what they're doing to upset us, what we're disappointed about, how we are being let down by them. And that is why sharing evidences of grace takes humility. 
And that is why I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to pair these two sermons together. Uh, it is only by becoming humble people that we will become the kinds of people who share evidences of grace. Uh, Pastor Tim reminded us from Philippians chapter two last week that, that humility is considering others as more significant than ourselves. It, it's, it's considering others as being the objects of God's saving, transforming, sanctifying work and celebrating that, not resenting the fact that they have it and we don't, but rejoicing in God's work. If we are to continue growing as a church that is built on a gospel foundation, then sharing evidences of grace is going to help us go a long ways. But it begins in the heart, and it begins with, with the cultivation of humility. It begins with how we see ourselves and how we see other people. We must learn to see people as, as called, as gifted, and as guiltless before God because of Christ. And if we do that, we, are to, we, we will become the kinds of people who see and share God's grace with others. You know, no one has written more about this practice of sharing evidences of grace than the founder of our family of churches, C.J. Mahaney. And, uh, and so I'm going to close with, with these words from our friend C.J. Most people are more aware of the absence of God than the presence of God. Most people are more aware of the presence of sin than evidences of grace. What a privilege and joy it is to turn one's attention to ways in which God is at work because so often people are unaware of God's work. So I want to interact with everybody by identifying an evidence of grace because if they are Christian, I know God is at work in their lives. What a joy it is to discern where and how God is at work draw people's attention to it, and celebrate God's grace in their lives. The fact that we get to do this, how cool is this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you see us as saints, first and foremost, um, not because of who we are or what we've accomplished in our lives, the purity of our hearts, because if you saw us as we truly are, we would not be called saints. We would be called condemned sinners. But in Christ, you have called us saints. Um, that is a wonderful mercy. And we pray now that you would help us to see one another as saints and to celebrate how you are at work in one another's lives, to help each other see what we cannot see for ourselves, that a culture of encouragement and building up a culture of using our words um, to strengthen others would spread and deepen and, and become more and more mature in our church. Not because we want to make much of men and women, but because we want to make much of you. Uh, you are the giver of this grace, and we want to identify that and share it. So help us, Father, and help us to become humble people who consider others as more significant than ourselves, that we might delight in this practice that we might outdo one another in showing honor. Um, we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.